This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alex Hughes, a staff writer for BBC Science Focus. Today, we're speaking to David Stainforth, a physicist and author of the new book, Predicting Our Climate Future. David sits down to talk us through the world of climate change, not just what it is and how it is currently unfolding, but more specifically, how we are measuring it and how to know which information you should trust and not trust. Climate change is one of the biggest conversations of recent years. So it seems somewhat strange to start here, but I think it's probably quite important for some clarity. What is actually meant by climate and what are the changes that we're talking about? (laughs) That's a really good place to start. One of the issues for my book is I feel that we haven't really defined what we mean by climate or what we mean by climate change. And that's one of my frustrations about perhaps climate academia, that we're, we're not really that precise about these things. And it means that when we try and get economists and mathematicians and physicists working together, we don't have a real answer to that. So I think there's a, there's a real problem there. For me, I would say climate represents what we should expect. It's what sort of weather we should expect, but also wider things, what sort of behaviours of ecosystems we should expect. And climate change is a change in those expectations. But in particular, what we should expect is always a distribution. If you think about the weather tomorrow or the weather next week, there's a whole range of different behaviours that could occur. There's that distribution of of different behaviours. And climate change is a change in that distribution. So it might be in the extremes, 
or it, it might be in the average, uh, it might be in some particular values of temperature that become more or less frequent. I think there's a tendency to think of climate change as only the catastrophic, but it's, it's everything as any kind of change. Absolutely. And how it will affect society is in many different ways. And we tend to focus on the catastrophic, very understandably, but simply relatively small shifts in temperature or rainfall can mean that uh, the products we can grow, the agricultural products we can grow, or the uh, health impacts can, can gradually shift and become really very significant. It's not always the extremes that matter. And apologies if this is making you try and answer something very complex with a very simple question, but how, how is it that we measure climate change and you know, that we're studying and how's that sort of changed as technologies developed? Again, there's, there's uh, so many ways of, of answering that. I, I think we tend to study climate change in uh, a number of different ways. We look at the past. One of the things we do is, is look at the past, whether that be the last 50 million years or the last 2 million years or the last 150 years. And we say, how has it behaved in that period? And we use that to try and deduce how it's going to behave in the future. So that's a kind of observational-based way of looking at it. The other major thing that we do in climate change studies is we use computer models. And in the physical sciences, these are computer models of the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere system. And we study them in great detail. So going on from that, there's been... I guess, a big push recently for Earth visualization engines. Could you go into those a little bit more and you know, talk about what they are and how they could be an important tool for the future climate change? Yeah, so Earth virtualization engines are really the extension of these complex global climate models that became Earth system models, and now we're calling them Earth virtualization engines. It's essentially, uh, the, the concept here is that if we throw enough technology at the problem that we'll be able to represent something that is equivalent to the real-world climate system. And Earth virtualization engines is saying that we're going to make our climate models very high resolution, by which I mean perhaps one kilometer resolution, so that you're simulating the atmosphere of the Earth at one kilometer resolution across the whole globe. That contrasts with, it used to be at about 100 kilometers, perhaps 10 years ago, it's about 50 kilometers now. So when we simulate the 21st century, instead of simulating to a way that could just about tell the difference between Oxford and London, instead we'd be simulating in, in a way that we'll be able to tell the difference between your house and your friend's house a mile down the road. So the idea there is that we'll be able to represent the behavior of climate that much better by increasing that resolution. And there's a lot of people who think that that's the way to go, that we will get something that represents climate realistically by doing that. I'm not one of those people because the atmosphere is not the only part of the system that matters. The oceans, the deep oceans, the cryosphere, uh, ecosystems, land ecosystem, ocean ecosystems, all these things matter. And they include processes that we don't fully understand. We certainly don't know how to represent, and we don't necessarily think that we could represent them even if we had a one-kilometer model. So my own view is that by going to these Earth virtualization engines, we are creating something that's really good for studying atmospheric processes, but not actually that good at telling us about what future climate will be. 
And worse than that, they look as though they are. So they drain a lot of resources and run the risk of directing society towards adapting to a future, which is actually just a model future. It's not doesn't represent what we understand. It's like you reached into my brain and pulled out my thought, because the next thing I was going to ask you is if it's if we can separate the human effects of climate change from natural occurrences, like natural uh, increases in the temperature of the sea. So I assume in that sense, it's not so easy to separate those two things. It's all intertwined and it's hard to, I guess, predict based on those factors. Always. They're, they're always intertwined. Yes. And, and we do need to consider it that way. That's not to say that we can't identify that mankind's emissions of greenhouse gases have led to changes in the climate system that have, they have led to global warming. We can know that really very well indeed. We, we know that the, the warming we're seeing at the moment is, is largely human-induced warming. But that's very different to being able to identify whether the particular heat wave that happens this summer or that summer or this flood or that flood, or in particular just whatever the changes you see when you look out the window and you see the changing timings of spring and, and autumn and the plants that you see growing, you might notice changing in those. Are they due to human-induced climate change or are they due to natural variability? It will almost certainly be a mixture of the two. For me, climate change, to, for us to understand and respond to climate change well, we have to understand the uncertainties in what we know about future climate change. But I don't want to come across as a climate skeptic in any way. We can know about the existence of the threat. We know that uh, it's going to be a very substantial change to human societies, very substantial threat to human societies. I mean, it's absolutely huge, and we can know that. Nevertheless, what we actually want is to be able to paint pictures of what those changes mean for individual societies on the ground. Only that way can we engage people in why you might want to change behavior, why you might want to change society. Those sort of predictions are much, much harder. And how do we go about uh, with those sort of predictions? Typically, we go about them through that sort of climate models, earth system models, earth fertilization engines. That's the typical way of doing them. And I think in my book, what I'm talking about is to say, actually, they're just really fascinating, deep challenges about how we go about using those models and how we go about linking the physical models to uh, economic models and models of society. And they are really, really interesting challenges. They're kind of uh, they're to do with the philosophy of science, they're to do with the maths of nonlinearity, and they're to do with the physics and economics of, of reality. And I don't think we've really addressed them. But I mean, in this podcast, you cover some quite tremendously exciting things. Uh, and I would argue that studying climate change is as exciting. It's as exciting as the search for dark matter in the universe or the search for the origins of consciousness. They're things we don't know how to do. And they're kind of, many of them related to how we use our models. So we tend to use our models as saying, we've got built a model of the climate system, so it we can treat it as if it's equivalent to the climate system, but we can't. And the maths of nonlinearity tells us that. So we have to look at cleverer ways of using our models. And that means using to, them to explore possibilities of the future instead of aiming at a single prediction and saying that is what it's going to be. 
instead of it being so much a case of um, trying to make a prediction of, yes, this is our exact future down to the day, this is what this exact occurrence will be, it's a case of looking forward and thinking, okay, this is what is likely, These are this is a possible future, and let's just prepare for what can come. That's right. That That's exactly the case. The difficulty is that there, there are a number of sources of uncertainty in what that possible future can be. Some of them are to do with the maths of nonlinearity, sort of chaos theory, which gets very exciting. But some of them are to do with the relationship between models and reality, which also has an aspect of maths involved and the maths of, of nonlinearity. Where you've got the butterfly effect that says, if you don't know the state of the, the weather today, you are limited in how much you can say about the weather next week. There's also a sensitivity that says, if your model is possibly even just a slight bit wrong, if it just misses one small element, it could be that the predictions it makes in 50 years' time could be very substantially wrong. And this is something that uh, Erica Thompson has called the Hawkmoth effect. So you've got the butterfly effect and you've got the Hawkmoth effect. Where we stand at the moment is that we've got a whole collection of different climate models, but there's still only 30 or 40 of them. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of possible versions of, of the models of the climate system, and they could behave, they could simulate future climate change in very, very different ways. What we need to do, and one of the big challenges and exciting challenges in climate science today, is to work out how we explore that space of possible models to give us the range, the domain of behavior of physical climate in 50, 60 years' time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. One thing that I'm curious, branching off of that is, I mean, as you're fully aware, climate change is very divisive you know people have opinions on it on every spectrum possible is there i guess a level of concern where if you make very accurate predictions and they don't come true or that they don't match up that it maybe makes the sides of climate feel a little bit shaky to those people that already aren't so sure in it absolutely 
I, th- I think that's absolutely the case. And we've seen that somewhat in the past, in the period from about 2000 to roughly 2012. You could argue that global mean temperature didn't increase that much. And so there was a, a, a big argument at that time saying, well, maybe climate, climate change has stopped. Maybe we don't need to worry about it. I think for those of us working in climate science, nobody ever ever thought that. The reasons to expect warming come down to basic physics of energy conservation and the radiative behavior of carbon dioxide and the like. So nobody, nobody expected that. But that wasn't something that we'd made clear beforehand. So people were surprised that there, we weren't seeing this monotonic year-on-year increase. And they quite reasonably thought maybe this calls into doubt where the climate change is serious. So I, I do think being honest and clear about the uncertainties is absolutely crucial. At this point, and for quite a while, it's been huge amounts of money that's been poured into a time research. Is there an argument that this time and money should be spent on planning for the future, making these graphs, making trying to better understand what's going to happen, or that we should be thinking more in a preventative measure, you know, should we be making flood defences? Should we be planning for a world that is affected by climate change? I think we should definitely be planning for a world that is affected by climate change. We already see the evidence of climate change taking place, and we know that that is the the consequences of climate change are going to get worse. We should be preparing for that, and we should be trying to avoid as much further climate change as we can. However. My view is that if you're to, to do that, uh, we need to roll into the social science of climate change. To do that requires us to carry populations along with us. People have to see why climate change matters to them. And that means presenting climate science and climate policy and climate economics in terms that are relatable to individuals on the ground. So how will climate change affect our society? And I think making those connections across disciplines to paint pictures of what the world will look like under different scenarios of greenhouse gases is absolutely crucial if we're going to be able to respond to climate change, at least in in democratic countries. Because we can all say, hey, we we don't like climate change. We we want to uh, mitigate climate change We'd like our government to do that. But once that starts involving changes on the ground that we maybe are not terribly comfortable with, we always like things to stay as they are, particularly if it involves costs that take funds away from other things we want to do in society, then people start questioning whether that's actually what they want to do. And I think where academia is failing is that we're failing, we're not painting those pictures of what climate change means to individuals on the ground. I think we see it as, oh, you might get flooded, or you might have have a heat wave. And I, I think a lot of people in society think that's serious, but that's, it's very difficult to believe it's going to hit you. Or there's a sense in which, well, surely we can build flood defences and we can, we can put in air conditioning. It's not going to be that bad. I, I think it probably will be that bad. And I, but I don't think we've painted the pictures of quite what that looks like. If I may say one other thing in a slightly related way, I think this aspect of uncertainty is also important for communication because 
most people throughout society are familiar with uncertainty. They expect uncertainty from scientists and from specialists in all sorts of fields. I think in climate science, the climate skeptics in the early 2000s were successful in making it undesirable for us to talk too much about uncertainty because it seemed to undermine the argument that we needed to act. But I think it's really important to talk about the uncertainties we have in climate science because that's what engages people with, it provides a credibility in the science that we're putting across. And it's also really interesting. So is it a case of, I guess I'd define it as maybe a PR problem that, you know, that we see climate change in a certain way and uh, it's for some people there's a blockade to understanding it because it's so scientific to others that you know there's a lack of connection to the end result of saying that you know that's not going to happen is it just a case of peeling all of that back and presenting in a way that the world really understands i think it is in a way that the world understands um but i don't think we should expect most people to understand climate science or to want to understand climate science. People have really diverse interests. Um, I suspect uh, listeners to your podcast maybe do want to understand climate science, but I don't think most people in society do. So it, it is a matter of making it real to people and individuals. And I think that involves, I'm, I mean, I'm a, a climate scientist, a physicist by background, but I, I also work on, on climate economics nowadays and, and climate policy and also a bit of uh, philosophy of climate science. I think there's a need to make those links across the academic disciplines so that we take the uncertainty in the physical sciences and use that effectively in our assessments of economics, but also then take that and portray what it means for society. So I don't know what it's going to mean for society. These studies haven't been really done very well, but I am concerned when people talk about concerns about climate change being focused on, on floods or heat waves. I think climate change will affect almost every aspect of society because we will be needing to fight the consequences of climate change in many areas, whether that's local floods, local heat waves, or whether it's inability to access certain types of foods or breaks in supply chains across the world, which drag down our economy. All these things are likely to mean that we're constantly firefighting, if you'll excuse the expression, to keep our societies running in a normal way. And in doing that, it means we're going to drag down the ability to do all the other things we want to do in society, whether that's uh, provide free education to all under 18-year-olds, whether it's uh, our ability to provide healthcare across the board, or, or whatever it might be. It's sort of whatever you're, you care about, it's likely the climate change will impact that. But I don't think it's reasonable to go out to society and say, you should care about climate change. It should be, you should care about whatever you care about, but climate change is likely to be impacting that. So it's less so about the giant floods and the meteoric uh, situations and more about here's why climate change affects absolutely everything in your life. Absolutely. I wanted to go back to the, I guess, the more scientific side of things quickly, because as I'm sure you're aware, AI and uh, all forms of artificial intelligence have had a, a big year and it's kind of had this rapid expansion and expansion in funding. Is that something that you see 
having an impact on the way that we measure and understand climate change going forward? It, it is. I think you'll have both a, a positive and a negative impact. I think there are many positives. There are many ways in which uh, AI technologies can be hugely valuable in helping us understand climate change and helping us respond to climate change. There are aspects of, of processing data, of seeking out aspects of, of the data that, uh, that we have uh, in terms of observations of the past and the like. But you mentioned Earth virtualization engines earlier. There's uh, a lot of discussion at the moment about how AI technologies can, can process weather forecasts as well or, or better than the big models at the moment. That's a very exciting development. How do we use that? I think, though, there's also great excitement that runs from that and says, hey, we can use the AI to tell us what the future is going to be, to paint these pictures that I've been talking about. I don't believe that's the case, and I think we are likely to mislead ourselves in the excitement of rushing towards AI and could well get ourselves into an even worse situation. And the reason I say that is that the problems of climate prediction, the problems of describing our worlds in uh, 2070 or 2100, are questions of, of, of information content. It's a question of do our models actually contain the, uh, can, could they possibly contain the information to be able to make those predictions? And if they don't contain certain feedback processes, if they don't contain perhaps information about certain ecosystems, then the information simply isn't in those models. And however clever your AI system is in processing the data from those models, it cannot produce the information that we're looking for. And it's the same when we look at observations of the past. We might have paleo observations from 100,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, or, or we might have really detailed data from the last 170 years from the Industrial Revolution and the like. But those are observations of the planet as it changes in a state that is really completely different to what we're expecting to see in the future. So the physical processes that are taking place are likely to be based on different interactions of processes from those we'll see in the future. And again, AI is so good at identifying and processing data. It's seeking out data. But if the information, we know a priori, which we do, that the information is not in that data set, then AI simply cannot produce the, the types of predictions, the type of pictures that we're looking for. So... If we use it cleverly, it will be great. I'm afraid I'm fairly pessimistic that we will get so excited about saying, oh, we can do everything we wanted, to, everything we're looking for, that we will actually use it badly. And that will guide us towards misadaptation of society and lead us in, into an even worse situation. So I think from the this conversation, in my mind, there's two, I guess, fields of this. There's the general public and then there's the science study and I think in the general public side, there's this idea that, you know, we see climate change as floods and end of the world, which, you know, there is parts of that, but there is also, as you were saying, how climate change affects every single part of your day, every single part of your life. And it's that side of it that we don't really explore much. And then on the science side, there's this fear of climate prediction and having too perfect of a model without it actually, without it actually working. And maybe just more thinking, what is the likely possibility and what does the future look like? Do you think overall that 
there is maybe just this idea that climate change is so focused on the end result, you know, the the floods and this exact predicament that we don't actually look back at where we are now and, you know, the, I guess, more day-to-day issues that come with it. I think that's absolutely, yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I think there's 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 real risk there. The, the day-to-day now, but also the day-to-day in the future. There are real conceptual challenges to understanding climate change in the future at the detailed societal level. I'm not talking about big global change level. And that requires imagination. It requires us to think across disciplines, whether that be um, oceanography or atmospheric physics or hydrology or agricultural science, economics, policy studies. It's a matter of thinking across these and, and having the imagination to make jumps of logic. And when I talk about this, there's uh, I, I have a sort of anecdote here. I gather back in 2008, at the time of the, the financial crisis, just after the financial crisis, the Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, went to LSE and asked them why this financial crisis not been predicted since it was so big. And they went away and gathered uh, a group of experts and came back the next year and said, well, it was principally due to a lack of imagination amongst some very clever people to really examine the risks to the system as a whole. And I I think we have exactly the same thing in climate change. We are not bringing the discipline together and we don't have, we're not encouraging people to be imaginative in terms of what it means for society, but also for the, for the physics. When we, when we think about climate physics, we think about Oh, feedback processes and climate sensitivity and how a cloud's going to change. Uh, but how clouds are going to change is not just a matter of clouds. You would think that it would automatically be about studying clouds. Only it is about how clouds behave, but clouds respond to the circulation patterns. And the circulation patterns respond to the ocean temperatures beneath them. And the ocean temperatures respond to circulation patterns in the ocean and also ocean biogeochemistry and how how it takes up carbon dioxide and, and the like. It is all one system and we need to think about it as all one system. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was David Stainforth talking about climate predictions. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come and find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.